it's in the air, this could be out. Diamond's underneath it, will he catch it? He's got good hands, he's got him, yes he has. Diamond's got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. It went miles in the air. Couch Talk. Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. Today's guest is former Australian bowler Nathan Bracken. He talks about his career, the epic 438 game versus South Africa, the 2007 World Cup in the Caribbean, the lawsuit he has filed against Cricket Australia, and Australia's prospects in the 2015 World Cup. Welcome to the show, Brax. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, when, you, when you look back on your playing career of uh, you know, five tests, 116 ODIs, and 67 first-class games, do you think you were able to get the most out of yourself? I guess when you when you look back, you always think, well, what would have happened if I did this or this or this? But I sort of go through and just say, well, I've achieved a lot. I've, I've managed to play test cricket, one-day cricket and T20 for my country, and, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Hmm. But um, were you given all the opportunities to uh, get the most out of yourself? I guess it depends what you're asking, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you, always, you always sit there and go, oh, I would have liked to have done this, or I'll I always sit there and say I would have liked to have played more Test cricket, but then I sit there and think, would that have affected how many one-day games I played? And I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And and to me, I found that as a as a big challenge because it's you are performing everything at the best of your ability, every ball, and there's sort of you can't afford to be negative and 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 things that you could probably get away with in in the longer form of the game. So I understand that that Test cricket has its challenges and it's probably often more a mental challenge than then sometimes it can be a skill challenge. Um, did you? Was there a point in your career where you said, you know, let me focus on one-day cricket more than tests uh, for various different reasons? I think when I was sort of not picked and, and overlooked for a couple of series, I started to to go and, and go down the path of, well, to me it, it started to become a focus. It started to, to really push the one-day game and, and concentrate really hard on that. Um, and just work as much as I possibly could, and I think that probably should have happened after after missing out on the on the South Africa tour, mm. um, where I was sort of talked about to go in in the test form, and there was a couple of injuries, and we should have ran three, four, five injuries, and I didn't get that opportunity. So then the focus really shifted, um, and even before that, I was sort of when you play in one form, your concentration sort of starts to really really focus towards that. So probably for me, two thousand six. Season probably Champions Trophy was the first time I'd really 100% just push well on playing this form. Let's concentrate and focus hard on this. Hmm. Uh, when you talk about that test versus ODI, I mean, from the outsider's point of view, you can see the differences. But from someone that played both formats and trying to choose one, how is it different for you as a bowler to focus on ODI versus tests? And if you have to go back and forth, what is the process like? I enjoyed the shorter forms of the game. I really did. Um, it was... I thought it was more... I don't know. It was just something I enjoyed more. I found I found Test Cricket sometimes was a little bit... a little bit slow, a little bit tedious. Um, whereas focusing on the on the shorter form of the game was, was something I thoroughly enjoyed. Switching your focus between... It, it's it's just... Obviously, change, you change... It's a different ball and it's a different way you go about things, but... The process is very similar. You sort of you switch through, and it's, it's like coming back from one day cricket to, to first class cricket, where you're playing four days. It's your focus changes across, and and you do things slightly different. But as a whole, I was somebody who wanted to swing the ball early, 
and put it in put it in areas to take wickets, and and that doesn't change in any form of the game that you play. I mean, one of the more epic games that you were part of um, was that uh, game in Joburg against South Africa in 2006, the 434 game, if you ask the Aussies, and 438 if you ask the South African fans. Um, could you, it's a question from a listener, um, Sriram, and uh, he, he would like you to take us through uh, that match of how Australia batted first and what was the thinking in the dressing room during the break and when he came out and, you know, you have Gibbs and Smith going at you. Well, the thing is, I guess when you look at those sort of games, you know, sitting in the change room, you know they're going to come hard because they don't have a choice. Um, and they're going to keep coming because in the, in the, in the one day game, you don't have that opportunity to sit there and say, oh, well, let's not chase it too much for us. We'll just play it out for a draw. You've got to, you've got to go and you've got to take the risk. So we knew they were going to go the whole way. And it was, we sort of looked if it was the opportunity to get wickets and, and the biggest way in, in those sort of games to stop team scoring runs is to continue to take wickets and that's what we were trying to do and it sort of panned through and we had we had opportunities we missed a couple of bits and pieces here and there and and in the end it, it probably cost us and it probably sort of cost us the the fact that I think we went in with the intensity that we knew they were going to come hard but we always I think some of the players in the back of their mind may have had the fact that oh, if we get one more wicket idle change and yeah. their batters just kept coming out playing the same way they kept being aggressive which they didn't have a choice to do, and a few guys came off and got runs, and, and in the end, it, our total wasn't big enough. Hmm. And he said, uh, you know, taking wickets would uh, slow down the rate, and you did your part. I mean, it's, it must be bittersweet for you, because you took a 5 for 67 most number of wickets, and the best economy rate in the defense of the total. Um, what did you, how did you feel when all those things were transpiring? Yeah, it was, it was hard, but that was my best bowling figures for a while in, in Monday cricket. Every time I saw it on the board, I'd sit there and go, oh, here we go. That's, that was that game, was it? Um, but yeah, I think to me, it was, I sort of really worked hard on knowing what I could do to each player and, and how to control situations. And it, it sort of came down to, to looking at what they were trying to do and, and assessing how to, how to sort of combat that. And, like it was somebody like Herschel Gibbs who, when he's on, is an amazing player. You look at AB Davilius, you look at the, the lineup they had, there was a lot of guys there that could hurt you and hurt you very quickly. And it was, to me, it was about controlling, controlling that as much as I could, but it wasn't about being in a negative situation where I go, okay, I'll try and bowl six balls that go for one this over because I knew in those six balls, somebody's going to take your risk to try and hit a boundary. So you, it sort of was, you build every over to try and get a wicket at the end of it or mm. to try and really put the pressure on that the wicket will fall next over. And, and it was all about sort of probably result-driven of, of getting the wicket every time you could. You know, um, you had the situation of Mick Lewis. You know, do you have sympathy for him, someone like him that comes in and then gets uh, bashed around the park and then never to be seen again? Yeah, of course you do. Um, and, then, and then you ask the questions... Like when you look at it, why did he bowl ten overs when mm-hmm. when things probably were, it probably wasn't his day and and other guys had done a little bit better job? Could the game have been different if if he had bowled nine overs and Andrew Simons had bowled one more or or Brett had bowled out his ten? And you start looking at those questions. And I'm not the captain, so I just I just do what I bowl when I'm told to bowl. And the say that I have is usually the only say I have is what field I can have. And and sometimes that's a bit of a bit of a to and throw between the captain and yourself and. 
you sort of explain what you're trying to do and, and get them on board with your plan as well. Hmm. Um, since we are in a World Cup year and we are in the midst of the tournament, um, you know, I want to talk about the 2015 World Cup. But first, I want to talk about the one that you were part of, the successful one in 2007 in the West Indies. Um, could you take us through the tournament, you know, the composition of the side itself and the preparations involved and the actual matches itself? Yeah, when, when we sort of went into the tournament, we sort of came in uh, probably training and, and workload heavy. Um, it was we sort of pushed ourselves through the one-day series and towards the back end we were preparing. We were preparing to, to head to the World Cup, so through Australia, into the Australian series. We didn't have the result we wanted. We lost that to England. Then we went to New Zealand. Again, we were probably workload heavy, and we didn't perform as well as we wanted to there and, and lost over there. But by the time we got there, it was sort of through the round games. We were often two-a-day training sessions and, and really working hard. But so once once we got through into the, into the Super 8 phase, it just sort of then became we were back down to our normal training routine, our normal program, which all of a sudden meant all the loading was done. We were, we were in the position where all the work, the hard work had been done and now it was just fine-tuning what we had and, and it sort of meant that the training probably eased off a little bit and it made it a lot easier to, to push through the series and, and we sort of, we started off a little bit, a little bit slow but it was sort of good, the setup of it with having, I think we had the Netherlands and, and Scotland the first two games and then yeah. the South Africa and that was a big game for us. It was important, I guess, after what had happened in Johannesburg that we got a, we got a good start. Matthew Payton on fire gave us a great total. And then that thought process back to Johannesburg happened and they got off to a good start and it was a good run out from, I think it was Shane Watson from the boundary, a run out and that all of a sudden changed it. And we, that game, we grabbed it because we knew we had to. We grabbed that opportunity and we really drove hard to finish it off and we did. Hmm. I mean, Australia had already won in 1999 in, under dramatic circumstances in the semi-final and uh, against Pakistan in the final in a runaway. Uh, and then in 2003, same thing, the final was a runaway. Uh, so basically, when you're a like, two-time defending champion, was there any sense of uh, pressure and expectation within the team itself? And uh, what was John Buchanan's role there in keeping everybody grounded? Well, I think, like, for me, I came off, I was in South Africa in the win there, but didn't play. Mm. So, to me, it was that sort of driving force. And then, chuck on the back of that, we had a few players that were walking away from the game at the end of the series. So, it was it was about building everything towards that and, and getting momentum. And we knew there'd be days where, as a bowling group, some guys would have better days than others. But we knew, as the series went on, it would just go round and round in circles. And we'd all have our opportunities and our chances to perform. And, and it was the same with the batting group. You look at somebody like Adam Gilchrist, who probably didn't have the big, massive tournament that everybody expected that he would. Um, but we knew as a playing group that every time he batted, if he missed out, he was one game close to that big score and, and it came off in the final for us. And that was, I think it was just the approach we had. We knew players would stand up when they needed to. Um, and the fact was, it was, it was different players all the time. It wasn't the same player doing it. It was different players stepping up and, and putting their hand up for the good performances. I mean, uh, that's what the most remarkable thing about that Australia team. As you said, there was always somebody good enough and uh, to take the game away from the opposition, right from number one to number 11 with the ball, bat, and on the field. Um, would you say that was the best uh, Australian ODI team ever? Oh, I think it's hard to, it's hard to say because you... As the game changed and evolved, it's hard to compare 
different sides at different times and, and different eras. Like you look at you look at things now, and, and even with the fact the ICC is talking about how big the bats are getting and mm. and all those sort of things they're looking at. But things change and develop, and I think you start to you start to get yourself in some tough situations if you're comparing sides from three, four, five, ten, fifteen years apart because things change, techniques change, skill skill levels change, and, and different attitudes change. So, but to be part of the group and and the guys we had the the confidence, the confidence was there that the players would step up and, and perform when needed, and and we were sort of in that position where guys are very very comfortable in in how they played the game and how they went about it. So that made everybody's job a lot easier. Hmm. You mentioned about uh, you know uh, memories of 2006 motivating you against South Africa, and you met South Africa twice in that World Cup, once in the first round and once in the second semi final, and you know you basically crushed them. Um, when you met the second time South Africa, did you know that you know you got the you had the wood on him on the second semi final because you just bowled him out for a hundred something and then you won with more than twenty overs left or something like that? Yeah, I think I'm going in, like it's a funny thing to say, but sort of we were sort of at that point where that was our time in the tournament. That was where we know we knew how to win games at the back end of the tournament. We knew how to whether it was a tough game and we had to scrape out a victory or what it was, we just, we had that belief we could do it. And when you go in knowing that, obviously that South Africa probably hadn't had the best run in sort of semi-finals or, fi- or finals or those knockout games which were which were pressure on, they'd had sort of a few little hiccups in the past and, and that was something that we really, really got up and we really used to drive our, I guess, our momentum through that game. Mm-hmm. The fact that... One, we knew how to win the game, but two, there was also probably that that question on on South Africa being able to finish it, and and that extra little bit of pressure, we just sort of really pushed and, and worked around that, and and got together as a group and knew it was important to get on top early, and and we did that. And uh, did you guys remind South Africa that uh, you know they have, they don't have the best record in uh, knockouts? Uh, I'm sure it was probably discussed very politely between a couple of players out on the field. Um, being a, being a bowler, obviously, most of the time you're down at fine leg or, or third man, so you miss out on a lot of the friendly conversation. And, and the helpful advice that's given out in the middle by by both sides, it's it's always good to when you're batting to hear blokes are the, the keeper and first letting you know what, what little technical things you need to work on or, or what's not quite working for you that day. Um, and uh, coming to the final itself there um, against Sri Lanka, you know, Gilchrist sprayed uh, one of the you know, finest ODI innings ever. Um, and, of course, it was rain-interrupted. Um, what was your, what were your thoughts uh, going into the defence of that total? Oh, going out and... Do, when you've got runs on the board in the final, it always makes it easier. And when you've got a good total on the board, um, yeah, it, it puts us in the position. Like, it's the same thing. We knew we, knew we had to start well. Uh, if we could start well and, and get in front, then it sort of... It makes everything harder. Like if you've if you've got the run rate, their run rate pushing up and up and up every over, it it makes it more and more difficult. And and we sort of got the start we wanted. We were sort of it was a flat wicket, and, but it was probably a wicket that suited us a little bit more than it did then. They had that little bit of bounce and carry in it, mm. which sort of suited our bowlers a, a little bit more. And and we tried to use that as best we could. Um, and you you opened the bowling and with uh, Shantae. Uh, and then you have backup for Megra Watson and stuff. But anyway, um, towards the end of it, it uh, became sort of a farce. You know, you thought you had won, but then you had to go in again in the dark. So could you take us to the situation, please? 
Yeah, well, the, when we looked at it, we knew that that once so many overs had been bowled, mm. that was it. It was game over. The same as same as anything else. Once there's so many overs bowled, it, it goes back on onto uh, Duckworth Lewis or however it is, and and we knew the score they needed to be at, and they weren't at it. So we sort of knew it was game over, and and the third umpire was of the same opinion. He knew that it was game over, and so we celebrated the game when it was done because we knew we knew the results because it was something that we should have really pushed to to pride ourselves knowing what was happening and what the rules were. And then it sort of came down where there was then discussion, oh, no, hang on, it's this, oh, you've got to come back to bowl. I think it was four overs or something to... And it kept going round and round in circles. And then, <laughs> then probably one of the nicest things in sport ever happened that they turned around and, and basically said, well, we'll go out there and, and play it out so it can all be done and finished. Mm-hmm. Because they were literally going to make us come back the next day, even though we probably didn't need to. And it could have been something that... If they pushed it down that path, maybe late that night, we would have got a phone call saying, oh, no, no, you don't have to come back, it's game over. Mm-hmm. But it sort of went through that position where they volunteered to come back out and, and play it out to, to end it then and there. And, hey, when you look at it, we got to celebrate a World Cup win twice. Did, <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Did it take any anything out of your celebration, the stop-start uh, end to their game? Uh, it probably wasn't as... The second one probably wasn't as good as the first one, but sitting back in the changes after, a win's a win to have the trophy in the room and, and to know that it's something you've worked really, really hard to get, it's, it's the same. That, it doesn't take away from that at all. And it probably on, on the ground celebration, probably the second time wasn't as big as exciting, but, hey, that's how it is, and, and that's what we were dealt with. But we got the result, and we got the win, and the, and the trophy sat in. So in the head office of Cricket Australia. Fantastic. Um, you know, you were not even 30 yet on that day uh, when you played the final in Barbados. Um, and two years after that, you played your last uh, representative game. Uh, that must have come as a rude shock for you that, you know, you have to call it a day so soon. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't something I had planned. And obviously the knee injury got to the point where it was, it was far too difficult to continue. Um, I know after the third knee operation, I, I tried to bowl with New South Wales and, and my pace was right down and it was difficult to get over the front leg because I'd lost movement and to this day I've still lost about 10 to, 10 to 12 degrees movement in my front leg and as a bowler who's bowled since the age of seven with a straight front leg, that's a massive change to, to happen at, at sort of 30 years of age and on try and get through and it, it probably sort of, once I started to lose the movement, the pace dropped and I sort of look back through even looking at the games and looking at results you see my pace was dropping and it was halfway through the tournament it was dropping more and more and and towards the end it was a it was a lot of work to get the ball down the other end of course you had uh, filed a lawsuit against cricket australia regarding the mismanaging of those injuries that you just talked about uh, where does it stand and what are the ramifications of such an action by a player uh, where it stands is um we've got a court date in in october mm. Um, and what are the ramifications? Well, that, that depends on, on where it goes. Like, I know that um, sporting bodies in Australia now haven't until, I think it's um, 2017, to have full insurance in for their players. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at it, for professional sporting organisations like you, say, for example, my the grade club I ended my career at, Eastern Suburbs, we had insurance if a player got injured. Yeah. If he got hurt during a game, there was insurance to cover him and and make sure it's okay. But when you look at the top level, there was nothing there. There's nothing that's, that a player can, can claim through if, if injured. Um, 
to to help him through, and and that's the thing that that needs to change. Is that as a sporting organisation, the players need to feel and have full confidence in they go out and give their heart and soul for the country, their team, whatever it is, and and that if you do get hurt in that process, that you are looked after, you are protected, and at the moment it comes down to the discretion of of Cricket Australia to whether they help you out or not, and and that's something that personally I don't think is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it needs to be something because when you have a look at the players, they, they push themselves to the limit every game, and and there is there is always, I guess, that chance, um, and it's it's just looking through the fact that that needs to be players need to be looked after and protected, and something put in place to to make sure that that players and, and families don't have to go through the process I have to go through for something I'll now carry the rest of my life. And, and when you look, I retired, I wasn't that old. Hmm. And I now have two kids and and running around kicking a soccer ball with my eldest is, is something I can't do. Hmm. Um, and no amount of knee surgeries or anything, oh, that's going to bring that opportunity back. Hmm. And it's just something where there's things through life that, um, will be more difficult now, and, and it's all those sort of things that, that have been looked at. Um, finally, I want to ask you about uh, the 2015 World Cup. Do you see a fifth World Cup for Australia? I think, well, honestly, they should win it. Where they sit, playing personnel, and all those things, I honestly believe they should win. Hmm. But then you go back to that but question. You're dealing at home and and we've seen it with India and the, the extra pressure that comes with that, all of a sudden, if you're in an environment where you are dealing with your own media, mm. um, the big thing is you have a you have a great game if you're in, like, in the Caribbean. One of the players has an amazing game. It's on the pay, back page of the paper that day. The next day it's forgotten about because somebody else has played mm-hmm. and their performances are up. And, and that's how it rolls. But when you're the home team, that performance is up and then it's up again and... Like leading into the game in New Zealand, they'll talk about Finch and his hundred in the in the first game, mm-hmm. Marsh and the wickets he got, the way we played and what happened, and that'll keep rolling through. So if we have a good result in New Zealand, that'll roll through. If we don't, the same thing will happen. They'll be talking about, oh, what happened? Was it the break? And then the players will start to get quizzed. We've seen players talking about all through the week on the radio and the news. Everything they're talking about, oh, is the time off going to affect us? What's the team maker? Why are you going this early? What's happening here? And that's, I guess, the extra pressure you do face when you're away. You don't see that. You don't see what your home media is talking about. You can just go and focus. So that's going to be the only issue I can really see getting to the squad is just the outside pressures that are really being put on. Um, Who do you think will uh, face Australia in Melbourne on March 29th then? You probably you probably look. There's there's three teams in contention. You probably New Zealand's playing exceptional cricket at the moment, mm-hmm. and for them it's going to be how well they can hold it through the series. Yeah. If they can continue it right through, then then I can't see why they can't be there. Yeah. And then you look in India. Is India's India? When they're on, they're they're one of the best sides in the world, and and we've seen that many many times. We've seen games where they're they're dead and buried, and all of a sudden they've come back and won it. But then we've seen games they should win and they haven't. So that's always going to be the question mark there. And if they they start to play good cricket and play well, they're a chance. And then you've got South Africa who has a great bowling attack, has some explosive batters. It's just, for them, I think it's just getting it right. Mm. And if they get it right, it's the same thing. So it's going to be, I'd pick between those teams. And I think it's going to be how how well they perform and peak towards the end of the end of the series and the big thing is you've got to chuck in the dark horse of obviously 
the West Indies and if Pakistan get there, mm. on their day, these sides can beat anybody when they're on. Yeah. And you don't want to be meeting one of these sides in a quarterfinal or a semi-final because if they have a day out, it can be game over for you, see you later. <laughs> and we saw Chris Gale, 215. Yeah. And did it easy. Because I think he got to 100 almost to run our ball and then unloaded and got the 215 off 147 balls. So you look at what he can do. He comes off in a semi-final. He might go out in the final and not make a run and the West Indies knocked over for 120. But the day they get it right, they'll give any team a serious shake. And they're, they're probably the little things you look at in this in cricket. And it's one, one of the beautiful things of the game that... If a side has a day out, they can get you at any time. And, and these sort of tournaments, it's it's nothing stopped in because if you have one team that fires, everything changes very, very quickly. Hmm. All right. On that note, Brad, thank you so much for uh, spending this morning. And I wish you all the very best. Not a wrong word, thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.